It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Fast talk. Street talk. Mike Graham. Fighting the good fight with all his might. Providing a welcome dose of common sense for the common people. Solid talk. Hot talk. The independent republic of Mike Graham. On your mobile, on your wavelengths, talk radio and talk TV. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Grove right here on Talk TV. We've got plenty to do today. It's quite a nice day. It's a bit chilly out there uh, for a spring day in the middle of April, towards the end of April, nearly May. Uh, We're going to talk about civil service. Apparently they want to work a four-day week which I can only assume is an increase in the three-day week that they're currently doing. I don't know. Uh, There doesn't seem to be an awful lot of civil servants walking around the streets of London, because many of them are, of course, working from home. You might remember uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg and his campaign to get everybody back to the office, which doesn't seem to have done terribly well. It doesn't seem to have done terribly well over in Sudan either, where the ambassador, British ambassador to Sudan, doesn't seem to be around, and neither does the chief of security seem to be around either. We'll talk to William Clouston, who's here uh, from the STP this morning, to find out what he makes of all of that. Plus, we'll be talking talking um, about doctors being tempted to work overseas and we'll also be keeping an eye on the Covid inquiry because uh, they're looking up uh, what the WhatsApp texts were uh, going between ministers at the time uh, of Covid and the time of the lockdown and all of that. We'll also be talking uh, about the Albanians coming to this country uh, on small boats as it turns out the numbers have plummeted after the launch of the removal scheme. Well, we did say that would happen, uh, and if only it worked in opposite directions as well, taking people from France uh, to Britain and then back again, maybe they'd stop coming too. Uh, Also, we'll be talking to Laura Dosworth. She's here. Professor Carol Sikora is around too. Apparently, the Labour Party uh, wants to teach boys to learn to respect women. We'll see how that all goes. Uh, Plus, we're going to be seeing Lance Foreman this afternoon. He's coming in uh, with a coronation box, uh, a load of food, basically, for you to eat uh, while you're out and about celebrating the coronation, which is not that far away now. 0344 499 1000 is the number. Also, we will be asking that question about Rishi Sunak and that rather odd picture, that rather odd video of him uh, being flanked by running police officers and cycling police officers all the way through Whitehall. It all seems a bit strange. 0344 499 1000 is the number. This is the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Let's get it on. Welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. This is, of course, Talk TV, the place to be, the place where you get the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Front page headline on The Times this morning, Race Against Time to Save 4,000 Trapped in Sudan. Uh, it's got a terribly familiar ring to it. William Clouston is here. Very good morning to you, William. Morning. Um, it always seems to take us by surprise, this kind of thing, doesn't it? I mean, it happened in Afghanistan, mm. which I suppose was no fault of our own because it was Joe Biden, the president mm. of the US, who decided suddenly to just disappear in the middle of the night and strand a load of people in Afghanistan. Some of them still there. Mm. Um, but similarly, people have been saying to me in Sudan, they've known about this problem. They've known that the war has kind of kicked off again mm. about 10 days ago. Mm. And yet we seem to be woefully underprepared to get people out of there. We are certainly uh, in the early stages. Um, some other countries, Germany, France, and so on, have done mm. far better than us. And in fact, British nationals have been helped by the French yeah. uh, to get out and actually 
possibly uh, owe their lives to the French government. Yeah. But yeah, it's not a good look, is it? The the ambassador is on holiday. Yeah. The security head of security isn't there, right. and people are stranded. There's four thousand people, and the mm. trouble is, as soon as I mean, it has been bubbling, hasn't it? This for some time. Funny, actually, a few years ago, a friend of mine was in a a, a, a zone which was emerging as a conflict zone, and he, yeah. he called me and asked my advice. This mm. was early early doors, and said, you know, people are trying to get out, uh, and it's costing you know ten thousand quid for a flight. I said, just do it. Yeah, do it because. Um, the the wager is really yes it might cost you you know if it if it settles down it might have cost you ten thousand quid for a flight but yeah. you could lose everything well, you could exactly. lose everything so yeah I, you know and apparently obviously the, 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 there's there's two HMS ships you know that are in the Indian Ocean mm. but they're a few days away right. Port Sudan is the location probably they but you really I think the route is out of the airport north of Khartoum yeah. which they're using which is because Khartoum Airport is obviously mm. uh, a no a no go zone so. It's it is a considerable chaos. It does it does. There's a there's a pattern here, Mike, which is that too often our government, when asked to do anything, mm. falls short. It's not a case. I mean, government nowadays regulates, it taxes, it does things, it orders people around. Mm. But actually, where actual physical capacity do something, yes. they often fall short. But isn't it interesting that we have now what I think is a, a kind of a state of play in almost every government department, and certainly in every uh, utility, perhaps, mm. where mm. everything comes as a bit of a surprise. There doesn't seem to be any planning in place. There doesn't seem to be anybody who's sitting there saying, OK, well, what if this happens? Yes. What would we do? It's always as though nobody's doing that. You know, from the water supply, we had drought apparently down in Dorset yes. they've got a hose pipe band going yeah. on I mean I don't know if they got the same rain that we got for the past month or so but mm. we've had a lot of rain and we've got water companies that can't handle too much water yeah. uh, and who can't handle not enough water they don't seem to know what to do the same with the electricity companies the same with the gas companies you know there's all sorts of um, you would think sort of war gaming that they should be doing mm. as to what happens in an emergency. I mean, we managed to have an emergency alarm mm. practice on Sunday, which didn't go terribly well. Mm. Apparently, some guy got one last night uh, at two two o'clock in the morning. Yeah. I mean, you know, it doesn't it doesn't see. I mean, if you're running a business mm. as you have, as I mm. have, you you sort of take things into account, don't you? Yeah, you do. But I, you know what I think is the real cause of this, Mike? Is it's a sort of collapse in, particularly in public authorities, but it is in corporates as well. A sort of collapse in responsibility yeah so what you get is an organization freezing and those in charge aren't making the call right. they're not saying okay we're going to do this right if it goes wrong it's on me mm. but it might be preventative it might say we'll, we'll take this decision. we'll take this decision yes. yeah and i think now you you see a culture all over the place where organizations can't make a decision mm. without getting some consultant to tell them they should take it yes you know so that's the sort of culture where it's, it doesn't surprise me it's that almost in. outsourcing the actual decision making responsibility so that when you do take that decision if it is wrong as it turns out to be yeah uh, you can blame somebody else and say well they told me to do it that's what they're on that's that's what it's all about yeah. is avoiding responsibility and avoiding taking decisions and saying it's on me it's it's a cultural thing this didn't wasn't the case 50 years ago mm. or, you know you'd have some commander saying okay this is the plan we're going to implement it mm. now there's still that spirit in the military actually they can still do the that, military but, i have to say is yeah. one of the places where it does still work yeah. you know because when we watch them for example back in the queen's jubilee uh, and even before the funeral um, mm. and, and all of this uh, uh, you know all of the sort of very deliberate and exquisite Maneuvers that yeah. they had to make—they were all perfect, incredible, all impeccable, perfect. impeccable. Yeah, but it's but it, it, it is really the division between people that have done things and can implement reality you yeah. know, and direct uh, physical reality, mm. and people that are obsessed with comms. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, politics is just chock a block full of people mm. that think politics is 
communications. About how does it look? How does it look? Right. Yeah, what's it all? You know, and they've never run it. They're not bothered about no. reality. What are you actually building? What are you actually doing? Is well, all you've a... got to do is look at these Labour adverts that have been running on social media. You know, mm. that Rishi Sunak doesn't believe in locking up child molesters. You know, entirely wrong, entirely incorrect. The wrong message, the wrong sort of feel. Um, and all about what they think they're projecting. Well, that's actually just rank incompetence. I mean, I, you know, I don't, I don't want the Labour Party to do well. I don't want the Tories to do well because I think they're both part of the problem. Yeah. But uh, that is just rank incompetence. They're not even good at comms, Mike, because no. I promise you, those that gutter politics mm. that Sama's doing... It doesn't work. It doesn't work. People don't want that. And people in fact, it's turned it. an awful lot of people off. And he so will. now the gap between Labour and the Conservatives is actually smaller yeah. than it's been for ages. Well done, lads. Yeah, terrific <laughs> job. Yes. Because um, they don't know how to fight Rishi Sunak because no. they knew how to fight Boris Johnson. Then we see a, a new book comes out the weekend uh, about Boris Johnson and the Covid years, if you like, mm. uh, in which it becomes clear that he thought Matt Hancock was a blithering idiot. Mm. And you think, well, why was he Secretary of State for Health then? Why not get someone else? Yeah. Be a less of a blizzard. Yes, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, there's no point saying it now no, after no. the fact that, oh, that guy was an idiot. Well, you were in charge of putting him in that job, so yeah. surely you should have removed him yeah. from that job. Maybe that was the right call. And given it, well, I think he's probably yeah. correct to say <laughs> that. Correct. But yeah. then he shouldn't have been in that I know, position. I know, it's just a failure of action again. Mm, it yeah. really is. And then back again to civil servants who are demanding a four-day week without losing any pay. Mm. It's almost as though they think they're entitled to a job which is paid for by us for the rest of eternity. Slightly on a different planet, aren't they? Mm. Uh, this is a proposal uh, by the PCSU, and it's backed by the TUC as well, of course it is. calling for a, a four-day week. And I, I think these people are, are literally taking the public for fools. Yeah, we Everyone knows there's a productivity crisis in the in the civil service. My, my initial reaction when I saw this was, OK, you can have a four-day week mm. for four days' pay. Yeah, that's what the deal is. You that's can't, what, what do you, you can expect have, but five that's not what they want. No, that's not what they want. They mm. want five days' pay for four days' work. So it, this is part of the... I mean, they're justifying it by saying, uh, complaining that the, uh, the the sort of balance, the sort of division between home and work has become blurred. Mm. And it's another... It, we just need to be completely disorientated, Mike. We've got, you know, a political class that doesn't know what a woman is, and you've got people that don't know whether they're at work yeah. or, or, or at home, and, and it's not good. I, my reaction, I've said this, is not very popular, actually, this, because a lot of people like home working and hybrid working, but I think we well, need to get they people like back it. to work. Yeah, but liking something and it being a good idea doesn't necessarily equate. I agree. You know, lying at home in your bed until midday can sometimes be a good thing. Yeah, very but nice. you won't do much for the economy no. and you also won't do much work, I'm no. afraid. No, you won't. But so you I... might enjoy it and you <laughs> might say, oh, I quite like it, actually. Well, I also think there's a conspiracy among managers because mm. managers in nice homes mm. are really quite keen on hybrid working as well. But why? Because they've got very nice gaffes. Yeah. You know, you know why, why would we intend And also, it isn't always pleasant to commute to work <clears> and for some people, you can save an awful lot of time and trouble I understand that. by not having to cram yourself onto a train every morning and every afternoon to come home. But again, you know, that's not necessarily the only um, measurement of whether mm. it's a good idea. Yeah, no, we're ending up with um, ghost departments, mm. ghost cities. Yeah. And actually it is, actually, there's a wider point here, which I'll bring up, which is if you can't get people back into the towns and cities actually turning up for mm. work, then a lot of our, a point we've made before, a lot of our economy will just fall apart. Yeah. Very interesting, actually, the... the you, people are writing now, you see articles all over the place, FT and other financial press, about uh, an on an oncoming uh, commercial property crisis in the United States. Yeah. Uh, they're predicting... Yeah, Douglas Murray had a good piece on that, didn't yeah, he? For, yeah, they're, mm. they're predicting, uh, you know, property prices will fall. And one of the reasons for this, Mike, is actually the hollowing out of cities yeah. like Portland and San Francisco and others, yeah. where post-COVID and post-BLM mania, 
people haven't gone back to work and workers are saying, I'm not going back to work. Yeah. And the commercial property funds have these great big offices, no one in them. Yeah. Well, I've always wondered as you walk around London how it's possible for these buildings to continue to be put put up. Yeah. You know, there's still I know, just there's around cranes. our area here. There's yeah. cranes everywhere. There's buildings still being built. Um, a lot of people say, oh, it's just the Chinese investors putting buildings up, but nobody's actually in them. Mm. Somebody told me the other day the Shard has got four penthouses, only one of them's occupied, mm. and they cost $45 million or something ridiculous. There's a, there's a lot and they're all on three floors, but nobody can afford to live there. The, and similarly, a great piece in The Guardian, sorry to keep going on, last week about how a lot of schools mm. in London are shutting down because mm. they simply can't afford to stay open because mm. they haven't got enough kids to teach mm. because families can't afford to live in London. No, they, well, they can't. I mean, that's we've we've argued... Ad nauseam, we need to. There's two major problems we need to deal with: the yeah. trade problem and the housing problem. You know, I don't see any hint of the government doing this. But just on the cranes and on the development of office space in, in the city, uh, my background is commercial property. There's an old, very old adage, Mike, which is, it's about the pig cycle. So the the time when you see a lot of cranes on the skyline mm. and a lot of office spaces being built, get out of the market. Why? Right. <laughs> because because by the time all that space goes onto the market. It will flood the market, and the price of office space will go down. It's, right. it's called the pig cycle. It's right. the sort of the old medieval thing of the the farmer goes to market, sees a, an expensive pig, grows a lot of pigs. By the time all the farmers done, that, the pig price goes down. Yeah. So th- a lot of this is cyclical. But but back on the point, I think they are taking uh, taking us for fools, and I think the government's got to get. Uh, the civil service functioning, got to get productivity up. The way you do that is not by granting a four-day week, so they should resist it. No. A good point here from Phil, who says, the military do well because they accept being told what to do. Yes. Um, which is a very good point, because we'll come back to this, actually, because Dominic Raab's <laughs> yes. resignation leads nicely into the civil yes, service. Yes, it does. And the fact that now, in an awful lot of office situations, you cannot tell people what to do because mm. they simply won't accept it. But uh, we'll come back to that. William Clouston is here. I'm Mike Graham. This is The Independent Republic, and we'll be back after this. The home of common sense. Talk radio and talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. We've got William Clouston with us from the uh, Social Democratic Party. More on that in a second. Just before we do anything else and talk about the Dominic Raab scenario from last week, let's have a look at something that popped up on our screens yesterday. Uh, It's Rishi Sunak basically being escorted through London uh, by a variety of police officers on a variety of different sort of methods of uh, travel, shall we say. Starting off first uh, with a cyclist who starts to sort of rather gen- gingerly push people out of the way. Then we've got a whole load of more cyclists coming through. It looks like something out of Billy Smart Circus to me. <laughs> so what are they going to be doing next? You know, there's going to be some guys with some trombones coming behind them, you know, waving, you know, throwing sticks in the air, but a few cheerleaders. And then you've got mm. a few of them running, I think, behind them, um, who don't look entirely as though they should be running. And they're not running very quickly. And then there's the motorcycles. And then there's the prime ministerial sort of... A cavalcade of cars. I've never seen anything like it, have you? No, it's slightly odd. What's going it? on? Yeah. Why are they doing it? Well, I think it was the... They were concerned about the climate protesters, weren't no. they? Uh, that was what it was about. But it w- wasn't a good look, actually. I mean, it was, it was quite slightly comical. Well, it does look comical. It, and as I say, it looks, it looks rather like something out of Monty Python to me. Yeah, you know? yeah. I mean, certainly the... You've got, you're going to sort of a ministry of silly walks and <laughs> yeah. sort of suddenly break into dancing or something. Yeah, you've got uh, a bit uh, weird. 10 bi- bikes out front and then you had a load of police officers mm. who weren't the quickest. The funniest bit in the clip, actually, is... Um, when they're running. No, it, right at the end, you've got this... Not, I mean, it, look, it looks as if a police officer's probably been the, the police officer that's been dodging PE classes or whatever. But anyway, he's, he's the one... He's lag, lagging at the end. Right. And, he, and he just he's jogging along and struggling. And then he, he actually gives up. If you look oh, at really? it. Yeah, he oh, actually gives up. I saw the clip. Yeah, he actually gives up. And it's rather like the uh, 
the the slightly bigger lad on the cross country right. uh, school and just gives up and starts walking. Yeah. Right. Anyway, poor thing. But it's not a good look. Oh, yeah. 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 I see. Yeah. Guy right at the end. I'll, I'll just. He just stops it. there. He just, oh, oh, it's too much. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, you carry on, mate. Yeah, I'll see you later. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I'm just hot for a coffee. He's, he's totally lost them. Yeah. No. Know, he's so far back now that he couldn't protect them even if he tried. No, it doesn't. But actually, it doesn't project very well because it doesn't look of terribly serious um, force, does it? Anyway, it's what it is. Also, I mean, I know I, that we don't live in the Bourne ultimatum, but you know, no. if somebody's going to attempt to have a go at, uh, at the prime minister mm. in, a, in a serious manner. Yes. I mean, he's not going to be stopped by a bunch of blokes on psych bikes, is he? Well, not re- probably as not. He, as he drives at high speed through them uh, in a sort of. In yeah, a truck yeah, with a no, bomb on it. It's just a little weird. Yeah. It is very strange. Anyway, I, I did actually, I mean, this was also a London Marathon, you know, which caused, uh, it was a great event and massive. And I actually did. Did you run it? I ran part of it. Mm. No, I walked part of it, tell you the truth. I actually crossed it right. on Parliament Square. So oh, okay. I ran 10 metres of it. I yes. Think. Yes, that's, uh, I can't really, I have done a half marathon once, but it's not really my thing. No. No. no, it's not mine either. No. I didn't run it either, as you might not be surprised to know. But let's no. talk about the uh, the civil service and the fact that, um, you know, nobody wants to now do what they're told. Mm. I mean, the questions that were being asked by the end of my show on Friday, because I mm. think he resigned just before the show started, mm. um, were, you know, can you now run an office in any business at all in this country where you can actually get people to do what you tell them to do without them kind of kicking off and saying, I don't want to do that? Well, it's becoming an issue. So, I mean, the first thing, I, my reaction to the RAB thing, uh, and I said at the time, was that um, obviously you weren't there, I wasn't there. Yeah. So we can't, you know, you, you can't actually know, really. You can't get a, a, a proper flavour of what happened. Um, you know, there were six allegations, or no, ten allegations, and mm. two were upheld. Yeah. Uh, you know, aggressive, uh, intimidating behaviour. But that, that is slightly subjective. Um, well, it's very subjective. Because I, the description of the behaviour is yeah. as it was perceived as opposed to as it was. Yes. So the person who complained... Feels. felt that it was intimidating yes. and aggressive, which yes. doesn't make it so. No, and actually Rab, and it's partly directness, uh, you know, so a lot of managers, actually natural managers quite often are direct. Mm. Uh, Rab de- described some work that was put in front of him as woeful, yeah. and that upset and hurty feelings uh, for the person. That and was, maybe it but was But maybe woeful. it was woeful, yeah, yeah, that's the point I made. So, But actually broadly, uh, the public should know this. And I'm, I don't want to, you know, I don't know, the Times reported today that there was there was a plot mm. to get rid of Rab, and I, yeah. that doesn't surprise me at all. That doesn't surprise anyone, I would have thought. And I found the allegations against Priti Patel difficult to believe, mm. uh, you know, we don't know that we weren't there. But anyway, I'm just going to make a general point because it's important. Allegations of bullying and standards inquiries mm. are now being used, not just in the civil service in the centre, they're being used in local authorities up and down the land yeah. as a weapon yes. against people that want things done. I know this because I've got, pers- I'm not me, but mm. I've got friends that have been yeah. uh, involved in And this. also everybody now knows if you use the word bully yeah. in any context in, in, in reference to somebody that you work for, yes. um, they will immediately retract everything and sort of pull back and, and, and just step away well it's a bit like racist or yeah. homophobe or yeah. trans or anything you, you accuse someone and everyone just panics mm. and then it's, 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 a me- it's a method of power mm. it's, 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 it's wielding power yeah. against someone but I, I think it's not I'm very worried about this because I, you know there have been some serious cases you know like the Rotherham child abuse uh, I, I, I inquiry and, yeah. and, and case I, I spoke to some Labour um, councillors mm. there and they were subject to standards inquiries as well yeah. and they told me that basically that was that was used as a weapon against them so you've got to be very careful often mm. whist- whistleblowers the good person in the room who's trying to get things done yeah. and call out corruption or yeah. incompetence or laziness or sometimes even ask questions yeah or just ask questions but the other thing actually you know to, to bring it onto a lighter note 
Um, you know, directness and brusqueness is is partly sort of which human group you're in. Mm. I, I give you an a couple of examples. Um, you know, if you if you have someone in Whitehall, maybe they're not used to directness, but in Yorkshire, mm. <laughs> directness yeah. is normal. Absolutely. I mean, it, you know, it's absolutely in an Australian culture, it's very normal. Well, I think we've also also had the opposite side of the spectrum, where you get people who can't explain what it is they want you to do because they can't really tell you, they can't really describe it, and then you don't know what they want. Steve. And I'd much rather work with people who are direct and, and, and maybe even a little bit aggressive because you know what they what they want you to do. I, w- I was once cycling with a friend who ran a, a large retail business throughout the UK and he stopped, his phone rang and he stopped and there was someone in the warehouse and they ring mm. him and he says, I'm not going to put on his Geordie accent, but he says, he said, no, I'm sure you can do it. You will do it. Your job depends on it, that's all. And it's, he right. was direct. He was a very, very good manager. Yeah. And obviously that was jocular, but now that could be, oh... You know, you could put you. It would send, might send a civil servant into post-traumatic stress, yes, and they might have to then take the rest of the month off. Yeah, and it might be a rights violation of some kind. Yeah. So we, yeah, I, I mean, mean, I had a case like that in in the newspaper business when I was working in it. Where somebody mm. had made a complete dog's breakfast of something or other mm. um, while he was meant to be in charge of the news desk, and, mm. I, and I said to his. To his immediate bosses, I don't want him ever doing that again. Mm. And he went off on a stress-related leave for three months, fully paid. Um, then decided he wanted another three months off, so he was only on half pay for that. But he basically never came back to work. Well, I, yeah, well, and in I, fact, while he was off work, they shut the paper down. Yeah, and he was still employed. But you'll soon learn. I mean, it is a standards do matter, and mm. we know it. So, so when I was a, a young surveyor working in the West End for a large practice, I, I produced a report and it had a typing error. Mm. Uh, it was quite an important typing error. Went through to the client and, and I, I got absolutely hammered for yeah. you. It, ne- it would never happen again. Of course you it should. It would absolutely never happen again. No, because, you know, if you work in an organisation where the messages in, uh, are pretty clear, mm. you, you, you go you go and do what they are paying you to do, let's yeah, face the, it. Yeah, and, the up, and you, they couldn't charge clients with stuff that went out with... It was only one, literally one letter. But the, the, they couldn't charge clients the, the right. amount they do if, if it wasn't absolutely tip-top. But the thing is, the, the, the holders of the standards are the managers, mm. and they often have to be Which brings direct. us back all the way to the start of the conversation about working from home. Yeah, Because, yeah. you know, if you haven't got anybody sometimes physically supervising you, mm. you don't do what you're supposed to do. It's also very unhealthy. There's another thing about working from home, Mike. It's not actually very good for human beings. We no. need each other. The common life together is a better life than yeah. isolation. Actually, you know, the, the mental health epidemic that everyone's going on mm. about, that is not helped by no. people being isolated. And if, you're, and if you are, um, um, you know, able to go to an office and work, it's far better because that's kind of what we were designed to do. I remember when I got my first sort of proper job mm. uh, after leaving university, you know, mm. I loved it. And I've been yeah. fortunate enough to do something that I really like doing. So I used to love going to work. Yeah, you know, I looked forward to it at the weekends. You know, I spent weekends with my, even when I was married with kids. You know, mm. young kids, it was all fine and dandy. But I couldn't wait to get back to work on the Monday morning. Yes. You know, <laughs> safety of work. safety of work. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I can't imagine the worst than not being yeah. able to escape the family yeah. home. Well, that's what they were saying. You know? I mean, they, they, this, this TUC thing, the PCS thing, sort of makes the point, doesn't it? I mean, they, they say that life is blurred. Well, it's not. It's it's probably better mm. for it to be. You know, you're at work. Not, we're not designed to spend every no. minute of every day with, with the same people. No. And then work and not work. It's no, the, not right. The contrast is very healthy. Mm, I yeah. think so. Well, good to see you, William. Thank good you very much indeed for popping in. William Clouston from the SDP uh, making some very valid points there about working for I'm glad it's not just me. It's just me and Richard Tice it used to be. Now we can add William Clouston to the list of people who think working from home is a bad idea. Because it is. So is a four-day week. So is blended working. I'm sorry if you enjoy it, but that doesn't mean it's good or good for you. Coming up, uh, we're going to be talking to Rupert Lowe um, about the numbers of Albanians, young Albanian men crossing the channel. Apparently the numbers have plummeted 
ever since they've started to get repatriated. Funny that. This is Talk TV. Nationwide, by your side, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republican Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Laura Dodsworth is going to be here very shortly. She's coming in for the next hour. Of course, she's going to be talking uh, about the emergency alert. Apparently went off for somebody in the middle of the night. Woke them up at about 20 past two. Marvellous. Everybody who who has had this alert has had it at a different time, it seems to be. Uh, So it hasn't exactly been an absolutely smashing success, has it? Also, uh, we're going to be talking about boys learning respect for women under labour. Which will be interesting, because first they'll have to define what a woman is, obviously. I don't know how they're going to manage that. But let's talk now to Rupert Lowe, former MEP, of course, because a couple of stories uh, about the migrant situation uh, coming to us this morning, uh, because basically um, Albanians who were coming in large numbers, I think at one point we were being told it's around six out of ten people on the small boats uh, coming through last summer and last autumn were in fact coming just from Albania, which is one, not a country that's at war, two, uh, is a safe destination for anybody to stay in, and three, uh, is on the brink of sort of joining uh, the European Union and is certainly part of NATO. Uh, Let's find out from Rupert why the numbers have suddenly dropped. Rupert, very good morning to you. Uh, Morning, Mike. Always good to be on the home of common sense. Indeed. Indeed. Not enough around these days. There really isn't. But isn't it astonishing that uh, when you start sending people back once they land here and don't let them hang about for very long, suddenly they stop coming? Well, look, I mean, ultimately, targeted immigration, I I never thought it was a bad thing, but it must be targeted. Indiscriminate. Uh, immigration, particularly people who come here illegally. That's where it's wrong. And I think what people have got to understand, the problem is the civil service who administer this, uh, most of them have this sort of warped view that the open borders that the EU offered is a good thing. Mm. Well, it it isn't a good thing. Uh, Targeted immigration is a good thing. And as you quite rightly say, most of these people coming from Albania or other countries in Europe, Mm. they are illegal immigrants. They're not asylum seekers. Right. So I think what should happen, zero tolerance policy, which is what we're beginning to see. Uh, There should be zero money uh, thrown at them when they get here. So no comfortable hotels, lots of food, spending money, all the sort of stuff that we've been doing. Right. It's unfair on the British taxpayer. And I think the Albanian uh, situation shows that when we start to get a bit tough, uh, the actual numbers will drop. And the Australians, all you have to do is look at Australia's zero tolerance policy. People should, if they want to come here, fine, mm. apply legally from your country, your home. Yeah. And I see, you know, one of the reports uh, is that people, are, more people are coming here from India. Well, that's fine. There's some very clever people in India. Well, but, absolutely yeah. right. I mean, interestingly enough, you know, we've still got plenty of job vacancies in this country. So surely the point should be that you would import people uh, and invite people to come and live here if they're able to fill those jobs. Fill the jobs and make a contribution. That's yeah. exactly right. But to have unlimited numbers of unspecified illegal immigrants is not fair, it's not right, and it's ultimately very damaging. And and we can see it with the stresses on our health service and and, and other uh, sort of services that people now who pay their taxes Mm. can't access. Yes. And I notice we're not hearing from any of the kind of lefty lawyer types who are saying, oh, we shouldn't be doing this because it's bad news for the the poor refugees. Uh, Apparently they don't care about the Albanians as much. Well, who knows what goes through their minds, Mike? I mean, most of them, uh, as we know, I, I think one of the problems that I think you know, I, my view is that the civil service is, is now not fit for purpose. But I think the legal profession, as it often does throughout history, it's got too big for itself. It's sort of, as, 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 as you'd say in horse circles, half a cut above itself. Mm. Yes. Uh, and I, you know, they need to be taken down a peg. There are far too many of them. 
they're basically pork barreling living on the back of the productive economy and, mm. and, and damaging the interests of the rest of us. Yes. Well, one of the reasons why so many people started coming on these boats is because the people who are running the boats are making an absolute fortune. You know, millions and millions of pounds a week. In fact, I'm told that smuggling people now is actually more lucrative than smuggling drugs. Well, exactly. And what our government has to do is have the will to crush uh, this immigration by having a zero tolerance policy and removing any benefit to these people from, uh, you know, first of all, risking other people's lives and secondly, bringing them here illegally. Mm. Uh, we've got to encourage them to apply legally. And if they're qualified and skilled, then fine, come. Right. But, uh, you know, I'll get I get stick from the, you know, what I call the, 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 the left loons. They're mm. always having a go at me on Twitter. Yeah. But the fact of the matter is, you know, they most of them contribute very little to the to the economy. They're not necessarily representative of middle England. Uh, and quite frankly, Mike, you know, I think it's quite clear that in the Brexit vote, one of the things that people wanted to do was have secure domestic borders. Yes. And that's something which we haven't yet seen. It's kind of ironic, isn't it, that actually it's got worse since Brexit. And I don't quite understand what the Home Office is doing. I don't quite understand what the Border Force is doing. Uh, never mind, you know, what the Navy was supposed to be doing last summer when they were supposed to be blocking them. Well, as we know, I don't think uh, the civil service or indeed most of the organs of the state uh, believe in Brexit. I don't think we've had Brexit. Uh, but in spite of that, there are some uh, there's some clear signs that Brexit long term, if it's played right, will benefit the British economy. Yeah. It doesn't stop us uh, cooperating with Europe. Uh, the problem we've seen is that the Europeans, because we've left their little club, uh, they have peaked and they've made life very difficult. Which yeah. I've always thought is highly unreasonable, given the support that this country has given Europe over many of its well, of conflicts, which are either usually started by the French or the Germans. Yeah. Well, this is the thing. Um, and, the, 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 you know, the stuff that dare not speak its name. You know, I went to France just a couple of weeks ago um, and it was not problematic at all. The only change really was the fact that they stamped your passport now rather than just looking at it and then handing it back to you. But it doesn't take any longer. The reason that it was a problem at Dover was because the French didn't put enough people in on the, the first biggest, busiest weekend uh, of, the, of the year for Easter holidays, for all the coaches. And as soon as they fixed that, the problem went away. So for all these kind of Ramonas to go on and on and on about how Brexit's causing difficulties getting to France, absolute rubbish. I couldn't agree more. But, you know, the club, which I call it, you know, and I was in the European Parliament for whatever it was, nine months. They changed the rules. Everybody accuses me of having a pension. I don't get a pension. Right. Because the Brexit party MEPs who were there for less than a year, they changed the rules to say you don't get a pension. Not, not that I'm particularly bothered about that. No. Uh, but no, their club must be struggling now. Our contribution was a huge contribution to the funding of the, what I call the white elephant, mm. you know, the three buildings in different parts of Europe, Brussels, Strasbourg and Luxembourg, all fully staffed, lots of offices, lots of sort of, you know, unlimited expenditure on right. whatever people want. Uh, it's It's got to start to struggle. And as you know, my view is that the euro... Uh, it's got a sort of, um, it's it's got a, a, a cross on its forehead. It's going, somebody's going to put a bullet through it. It cannot survive mm. long term. No, it's it's not a currency. It's an index, uh, and it's it's basically made up of. Uh, very, very different cultures and very different economies. So well, I, I mean, I've said ever since the, the, the sort of introduction of the euro, it makes absolutely no sense for places like Greece to have the same currency as France or Germany. Bonkers. You know, they're completely Bonkers. different economies. Uh, you know, it turned out that in the end, 
the Greeks um, more or less gave up on exporting olive oil to Germany because Germany, Germany could make it themselves cheaper. So they just stopped buying it from them. Well, it's almost depressing when you go to Italy, which is a country I love. We, we, my wife and I go walking Me in too. on a re regular basis. Yeah. Fantastic place, great people. But the Italian economy, Mike, is being strangled by mm. the euro. Yeah. Uh, and it's only being propped up by huge amounts of uh, 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 European Union money, which is being printed and pumped into Italian bonds. Yeah. Well, that is not capitalism. That is central planning. Yeah. And it's a desperate attempt to try and hold the euro together for longer than it deserves to be held together. Mm. But while we've got people like Christine Lagarde and, and, and the, the rest of the, 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 the sort of cohort in charge in, in, in Brussels, they're going to go on doing whatever it takes to keep the, the this post-war socialist experiment yeah. going. And, and when it collapses, it'll be like communism. And they're spending said. an absolute fortune. Nothing left. Well, they're spending a fortune, aren't they, on, on, the, on the bureaucracy of it, the admin of it all, uh, the numbers of MEPs that they've got there, as you know better than anybody, the fact that I assume they're, they're still toodling off to Strasbourg for their sort of annual jolly where they all get on a train and go somewhere else and do the same thing um, for apparently no reason at all. I mean, it's incredible. Well, and the one thing well, I did the notice in France, the actually... The treaties say, Mike, that they've got to have a certain number of plenaries in Strasbourg, mm. which is in France. So that what the treaties say, as we know, they're fixated with their treaties. Yeah. Uh, so what happens is you get pantechnicons of lorries, mm. uh, trainloads of documents, yeah. uh, virtually the entire uh, fleet of Mercedes-Benz cars mm. uh, driving from Brussels to Strasbourg to support the, uh, the, the, the sort of the Eloy, the beautiful people of, yeah. of, who've, been, who've been elected, not to drive legislation, but they simply have a negative mm. uh, Pledge on legislation put forward by the unelected commission. So, look, it's I think it costs over two hundred million pounds a year <laughs> just, to, just to satisfy this ridiculous yeah. treaty obligation. But it's mad, that's what it? that's what you've got there. And one of the things I did notice in France, although the wine was very very cheap indeed, the food was actually much more expensive than the food is here, and it's pretty expensive here now. Um, yeah, and Italy's, Italy's got very expensive. I think parts of France, I, I actually don't think French wine is, is, is too bad. I mean, it's still relatively good value. Mm. Um, and the one thing you've got to give the French credit for, I, you know, I, I, I'm not sure whether they've historically been our, our ally or our enemy. That's, there's, there's probably quite a good debate to be had about that. But uh, they do know how to live. Uh, and I do actually admire their people for standing up to uh, the, the mini Napoleon Macron mm. and actually making their feelings felt. Because in a democracy, if you don't make your feelings felt, you end up being being bulldozed. And yeah. I think um, you know it's quite encouraging to see that French passion. Uh, and they equally have a passion for wonderful food, which often they grow and sell in their markets, which yeah. are, you know, which are a great experience to go to. Yeah, absolutely right. Well, it's good to talk to you, Rupert, as ever. Rupert Lowe, former MEP there on the delights of the European Union and how ridiculously expensive it is to run. Uh, because, of course, apart from even that one episode where they go to Strasbourg however many times a year for 200 million quid, there's all manner of ridiculous rules and regulations and laws that they have to pass every single year uh, just to keep themselves busy. Because, frankly, you could do without a European um, Union um, administration body altogether. Because certainly when you're in the European nations, you don't get the sense that they're all in cahoots with the EU and they all can't wait to be given their latest list of instructions from the European Commission, because they're not. They don't live like that. Not in France, not in Germany, not in Italy, not in Spain, uh, not anywhere uh, in the European continent. It's as simple as that.
perhaps uh, Rupert's right and it will in the end eat itself, disappear altogether. This is Talk TV. On your mobile, on your wavelengths, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Well, I'll tell you what, there's always something auspicious that happens during the show. Uh, Today, uh, we've got Joe Biden announcing that he's going to rerun for president uh, in 2024. That's good, though, because he's only going to be about, what, 104? Um, Well done, Joe. I don't know why he's issued it at this time in the morning. It's currently just coming up to five past 11, which is five past six. I know they get up early in America, so uh, he's probably just having his waffles and pancakes for breakfast uh, and his coffee. Uh, So Joe Biden will run for president. So that presumably will mean that he will be the Democratic nominee because it's unlikely to be anybody that's going to challenge him uh, that could actually beat him. So you're going to have a very old man running against probably, if it's not Ron DeSantis, uh, it might be Donald Trump. It could well be that two rather old men uh, are struggling to win uh, the hearts and minds of the American public. Can you do another four years of Joe Biden? We'll be talking to LaDonna Harvey coming up a little bit later on in the show, live from San Diego in California. Uh, we'll get her view of it all. Uh, we always say in this country, uh, as much as we don't might maybe like the government, um, at least we can do better than giving people a choice. Uh, uh, the like of which they're about to be given uh, in America. Biden-Harris, it says, JoeBiden.com. I'm just looking at an advert uh, which would suggest that Kamala Harris, who's the vice president, will run with him as well. We'll keep you updated as we go. Let's talk now, though, to Professor Carol Sikora, uh, medical director of Rutherford Cancer Centres, of course, because um, there's a terrible story doing the rounds this morning that there's now a cancer crisis. I know that we sometimes use that word uh, rather too much, but genuinely speaking, um, Carol's written a piece in The Telegraph today uh, saying that the cancer bomb may soon be worse than COVID itself. Uh, Carol, very good morning to you. Welcome. Morning, Mike. Um, Very interesting piece you've written about. You and I have spoken about the the system um, for treating cancer in this country for quite a long time now, and it doesn't appear to have got any better um, ever since COVID. I mean, you've always stressed that, you know, there must be better treatment. There must be better um, early spotting of, of signs of cancer, of symptoms. There must be better referrals. You know, has anything improved in, in all of that time? No. That's shocking, uh, it isn't it? Before COVID, to be honest. And it's got worse with COVID and it's not improved since COVID. Mm. I and mean, that's the worrying feature. Yeah. The backlog is still there. We know there are over 7 million people waiting for something with the NHS. Some of them will have cancer that's undetected, undiagnosed. Mm. We've just got to get them through. And, uh, uh, you know, th- there's no sense of urgency. Mm. Instead, what we get from NHS England, which are the controllers of our healthcare, even if you don't live in England, and they're pretty powerful at deciding what treatments you'll have in Wales and Scotland. Um, there's no sense of urgency. They just put out this sort of bland, so we're spending another billion pounds on this and that. But where's it all going? Yeah. No. Well, that seems to be the problem. I mean, last time I think we spoke, you were pleased that one of the centres that was a private centre was actually now being opened up for use by the NHS. And has that actually, has that happened at least? It's not. Liverpool is opening up in the summer. It takes a bit of time to get going. They're changing the function to more of a diagnostic function, which is sorely needed in that part in in northwest England. Mm. So the biggest problem with cancer is how you get diagnosed. First of all, you've got to realise you've got something wrong and you've got to get over it Mm. and do something about it. Then you've got to get an appointment with your GP, which at the moment is quite a challenge. I Mm. think everyone's finding it challenging. And then they've got to refer you to a hospital. So the chances for delay are very significant in that. And 
Early cancer, easy to treat, good results. Late stage cancer, when it's spread, much more difficult to treat and much poorer outcomes. So there you are. That's if unless we can speed it up. I'm mean, in Europe. Everybody gets diagnosed. Well, West, Western Europe anyway, France, Germany, mm-hmm. Italy. You'd be diagnosed, scanned, biopsied, all within ten days. Right. Here, the target is sixty-two days. So you know, with the targets mm. really hopeless. And the targets are ludicrous, aren't they? Because I, I know the American healthcare system, as you know quite well, and it's similar there over there. You know, everything moves a lot quicker, uh, and yes, it can cost a lot of money, but it can cost a lot of money here as well. Uh, absolutely. I mean, if you if you're booked for an MRI scan, for example, the cost of an the actual cost of it's about two hundred pounds. Mm. Sure. If you pay for it in the private, it'll cost you 800 or something. Mm. The cost That doesn't matter whether you have it tomorrow or in 10 days' time or in two months' time. The cost is exactly the mm. same. Right. It's just an organisational, a logistics issue. Now, we know we can do it. We did it for vaccines. For goodness sake, we vaccinated you know, half the population within a few weeks of uh, the vaccine yeah. being announced. We can do that. We can do this. Well, you would think. I mean, you've suggested in this piece today in The Telegraph that, you know, maybe uh, the the whole British cancer services should be put into special measures. I mean, would that achieve something at least if they did that? I think if they took them out the humdrum of the normal NHS, um, the problem is there are lots of bottlenecks in healthcare, Mm. in every healthcare system. The NHS has particular ones dealing with older people, people of my age Mm. that have multiple comorbidities, multiple illnesses, come in and they sit in a bed for months, then there's nowhere for them to go. And we don't seem to have got over that. Mm. Other countries deal with that issue much better. And that clogs up the system. These people don't want to be there, by the way. They're Mm. not... Uh, I'm not blaming them. They'd rather be home or in a care home, but they just can't get out. And that means that everybody is waiting for them to move before they can get on. If we could solve that problem, and people are trying to solve it, but very slowly. Yeah. I mean, I say very frequently on this show that, you know, it's all very well blaming the government for uh, problems in the NHS, but an awful lot of the problems in the NHS must surely be the responsibility of the people running things in the NHS. And I always wonder when we have these conversations, couldn't the managers be doing more to kind of speed everything along? I think they could look at the logistics of it. So, for example, just say the waiting list for a CT scans in a hospital has gone up to two months for a routine or even an urgent CT. So that means, are they shutting at five o'clock? Are they shutting at weekends? Mm. Are there ways you can pay staff overtime to just get through the bottlenecks, get it done, get the backlog cleared, and then start again? Mm. It's back to this thing. If there is a backlog, it's never going to go away unless you do something. Right. Uh, it's not that different for a manager running a pea factory, a pea canning factory. And if the peas aren't coming in at the beginning, the problem is get the more peas. If the cans are coming out at the end, you've got to get faster processing. Yes. That's what we've got to do. It sounds very straightforward when you say it like that, but, but somehow the health service of this country has sort of ground to a halt. I mean, we've got a, a story today about GPs and saying that basically they're in such um, sort of a state of flux now and they're so busy that patients are being rushed through um, in a matter of minutes, you know, because the, the doctors just haven't got enough time to spend on them. I, I think time is the enemy of uh, good health care. In other words, good health care requires time with mm. different professionals, nurses, doctors, counsellors, psychologists, and everything. And the NHS has lost that time frame. So in the NHS cancer clinic, five new patients, 20 old patients in a morning, 
uh, it's pretty stressful for the doctor and quite stressful for the patient because they have to often bring a relative. Some of them can't speak English, so you have to do it through an interpreter. It all takes time. Mm. The private sector is a bit more generous. You get at least three quarters of an hour for a new patient. And you know, if you have more time, it's much more satisfactory. Yes. And also, if you know the patient, if I see follow-up patients, I can do that very quickly because I, I don't need to open the notes. I know them from no. the past. And that's what it used to be like. And I hate to sound like an old git that just moans about things not being what they were like when I was younger. But, you know, you knew your doctor in those days. You know, the doctors that are at my GP surgery, that thankfully I haven't been to for many a year. um, You know, there's about 10 of them and it's quite a big practice. and, And I've never seen the same person twice. No, I, I don't know who my GP is. I had to write it on a form at the hospital, no. and I have no idea who my GP is. I'm, you know, I used to, uh, but now I don't, no. and I think that's the problem. No one knows who I am, and I don't know who yeah. they are. If and something goes wrong, they have nothing, no baseline to judge it on. No, and every time you wait for uh, for an appointment, if you do wait for a long time, which you probably do, and then you get into the waiting room, and then you wait some more, and then you get in to see the doctor, and they're talking about being seen for less than five minutes. It's not a very comforting thought, really, is it? Uh, and also just dealing with one problem. Yeah. Many older people have several problems, so you have to make several bookings just mm. to get to deal with two or three problems. Um, it's Something has to happen. Something has to give in the system. And I, there's got to be a tipping point at which we say, that's enough. It's mm. got to get better. Yes. I mean, Tony uh, in Barrow sent me this. He says, Mike, from the day they said I may have cancer, it took almost 12 months to be confirmed that it actually was cancer. And that yeah. can't be right, can it? No. And uh, you know, the Labour Party issued a Freedom of Information report last week, which triggered the article a little bit mm. uh, about all these delays in cancer right round the NHS and the country. And, you know, it's not just the odd story. It's a whole series of things going on. And if you look at the targets, they're not being met. Mm. And so and the targets, as we know, are very generous. So something has to give in the system. And uh, it's not more money. It's better organisation. And, uh, you know, let's run it like a budget airline. They seem to do quite well. Well, it's amazing what you can do with a lot less money. I think sometimes the NHS suffers from having too much money because there isn't anybody really focusing on what they're doing with the money. They're just kind of spending it on whatever they can spend it on. I think also it's not a consumer-focused organisation. I mean, you can't make appointments easily. Mm. You can't change them. You can't... The hospital phones don't get answered. Um, it's just not consumer focused. And of course, it doesn't have to be because there's nowhere else you can go. Yeah. And if you're rich, you are stuck with the NHS. So you have to use it. Yes. One final story on the front page of The Times today, Carol, I'd like your view on. Rishi Sunak has been urged by Britain's biggest drug maker to speed up efforts to allow the use of NHS data for the development of new medicines. Is that a good idea? Uh, it's probably a good idea. It's anonymous data. Uh, I would say, look, if it helps to develop new drugs or it helps, more importantly, to target the right drug to the right patient, which is what artificial intelligence is being used for by the pharmaceutical industry, that seems reasonable. And we'll have to watch the profit motive in here and that the, the drug companies have shareholders that want to make money and uh, that may not always be in the interest of the, the customer at mm. the end of the day. No, that is a big problem. Professor Carol Sakura, great to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Medical Director of Rutherford Cancer Centre has written a piece in The Telegraph today uh, in which he basically says that uh, the cancer system in this uh, country is in absolute and utter crisis and the bomb that uh, will go off may soon be worse than COVID itself. He says he's never seen the NHS in such a bad way in the whole of the 40 years of his career. 
which is really saying something, isn't it? Um, Joe Biden announcing that he's going to run uh, for president in 2024. Uh, apparently, it's four years to the day uh, since he declared his initial bid for the White House by promising to heal the nation amid the turbulent administration of former President Donald Trump. You can see his tweet there uh, on screen. He's already the oldest president in history. And if he wins, he would be 86 by the end of a second term. And he's put out a video, which we'll play you a little bit later on, of course, as well. Uh, LaDonna Harvey will join us. She's going to talk to us about uh, the view from California on the fact that Joe Biden has announced just now, uh, a few moments ago, that he's going to run for president in 2024. Gabby says this, uh, Mike, on the Channel Crossings, when the Border Force picked them up, rather than bring them to our shores, they should have an international vessel in the middle of the channel to be able to fingerprint and... Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Do proper checks as they are in an international vessel. They can't claim asylum. So that way they can either take them to international waters uh, being deported to a third country such as Rwanda. Well, there's all sorts of possibilities and things that could be done. It would be a good idea to do that. We've obviously previously said, why not put them in some kind of a cruise ship or some kind of a, a ship in the middle of the sea so that that's exactly where uh, they would then try to, to seek asylum. And if they failed, they would never actually land in Britain in the first place. Makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Laura Dodsworth is here. She'll be coming up next. The home of common sense. Talk radio and talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. It's Tuesday. Uh, it's got a blue sky, fluffy clouds. And here's Laura Donsworth. Very good uh, morning to you. Good morning. Joe Biden for president. I say that obviously as a news headline rather than as an endorsement. <laughs> Let's be very clear. There's no endorsing going on in this corner of the no. studio. The Western world is doomed. It doesn't make your dear, heart oh sing, does it? Oh, dear, oh, dear, oh, dear. He's I put mean, out a video that's about three minutes long and when he looks as if he's had some kind of, sort of surgery. He looks as if his face has kind of yeah. completely been wrinkle, made wrinkle-free. Yeah, but Amer it looks America's weird. in trouble, isn't it? I mean, it's really nice that he's confident he's going to be um, alive and healthy yeah. for the next term. So well, on the plus side, he's I confident guess, about his yeah, health. I guess so. Although some people clearly have worries about him tottering off and not knowing where he's going and yeah. forgetting what he's saying halfway right. through interviews. Mm. It is strange that, 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 that we say this all the time, but it's true that America can't seem to find anybody to run for the Democratic Party who's any younger than him. Because they can't. They literally haven't got anybody who could even win the nomination. Yeah. Or even challenge him. But who in the Western world is an inspiring leader these days? Well, there's not many, are there? No. Um, I'm trying to think of one. Good luck. Yes. I mean, the woman in Finland people quite liked for a while. But mm. I don't know enough about her, really. No, no. Don't think about her Politics either. seems a very different game in Scandinavia, yeah. doesn't it? Yeah, it does. And they're always said to be very sensible there, which is, you know, not really my idea of how to run a country. But anyway, um, let's talk about the emergency alarm. Yeah, let's. Alert. I thank goodness it's a nice blue sky and a sunny day today. Mm. And there's no extreme weather to warn us about. Absolutely. That is one of the major purposes no of these emergency alerts. They yeah. are for um, an extreme, you know, severe danger to life, such yeah. as floods, wildfires, fires and extreme weather. Tornadoes. Now, extreme weather. 
is the one to watch. Mm. Because if you think about weather reports yes. over the last year, you know, we were getting amber weather yeah. warnings dished out like sweets yes. on balmy sunny days, you know, big exclamation marks and... Um, you know, lots of danger, carry yeah. your water. It's going to be hot right. on a summer's day. Mm. I know I'm making light of it a little bit, but that has been very much a deliberate strategy. Well, I mean, I grew up in a time when we didn't get any warnings about anything. You know, we travelled all the way across Europe without seatbelts. You know, I live dangerously. I don't really need to be told it's going to be a bit hot. How did we manage? I mean, how, I don't know. I don't know how I've gone 50 years on this earth without emergency alerts. But I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure the, kind of, the do-gooder uh, brigade would say, oh, but a lot more people died in car crashes then. Well, maybe, but I didn't. The thing that I'd really like to draw people's attention to, I wrote about it on my Substack. I haven't really seen anyone else point this out, yeah. but I think it's really important, actually. There's something significant about the day that was chosen to test emergency mm. alerts. Now, the first test was going to be on Mother's Day, and there, yeah. was, a, there was a bit of anger about that. Was you it? know, you're going to spoil everyone's Mother's Day lunches right. with these sirens going off, everyone's phones squealing and quaking as we're drilled for disaster mm. and fear. Um, so the date was rearranged, but it was changed to St. George's Day. Mm. So I think it's interesting that on a day that we would normally celebrate our patron saint, who represents chivalry mm. and courage, right. we were being told that we have to pay attention to our phone to mm. prep us Although, to be honest, for disaster every day and is, fear. Yeah, but every day has got some kind of day attached to it now. You can't get any day that isn't something or other world international day of you know tortoises or something you know every single day now there's a day for it isn't there i think so but i think saint george stands above tortoise day Does you know it? i think i think the patron, Not for everyone the patron saint of england <laughs> is a is a significant day and it's actually one that we normally hear about because we're told oh he was a palestinian or oh, a you Turk got, the Ramonas you got, you you got nothing to be proud of yeah. you english lot yeah yeah uh, this year of course it was just completely by the by because mm. we were all focused on the idea of our phones emitting unwanted sirens. Right. I think Although that, I did switch mine off, to be fair. Yeah, and I did too. I actually think this is something of a litmus test mm. for, for who you are as a person. Yeah. You know, Do you want a big government keeping you safe mm. or do you see it as the nanny state? Yes. You know, do you see your phone as your private property for your communication or is it a government pager in your yes. pocket? Do you, you know, and, and, you know, as far as St. George's Day, is it a day for a saint, for courage to celebrate bring... British or is it a siren mm. for fear? You know, there's 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 a way in which it's quite a divisive tactic in the end. You know, and I think a lot of people did turn their alerts. A lot off, of people did, which I think is actually quite an and encouraging also a lot, load sign. more people didn't actually get it anyway. Because I mean, the one thing you can be sure of, no matter what the government wishes to impose upon us, is they won't do it very well because they can't. They can't seem to make anything work particularly well. I mean, in my household on Sunday, one person got it um, sort of seven minutes late, another one got it twice, 20 minutes late, um, and somebody else didn't get it. You know, there was all sorts of stories that we did on Monday of people who didn't get it at all, people who were on the three network yeah. apparently didn't get it. So, you know. The Welsh language was messed up, which would be really bothering people in Wales. Sure. And, you know, some people got it in the early hours of the morning. Yeah. But, you know, to be fair, a test is to iron out the wrinkles. But, you know, this well, number why? of wrinkles Are they going to do another been... test? You know, will they do a test? Every... I mean, I was having arguments with people, as you might expect, saying things like, well, don't you ever test the fire alarm? Well, yeah, you test the fire alarm because that's in case you have a fire. But you don't test an emergency alarm for nothing at all 
just in case nothing at all happens. You don't know what it's for. Nobody knows what it's for. I can pretty much guarantee this will be misused. Now, you know, we do we do have a risk of flooding in mm. this country in certain areas. And, of course, there's an idea that could be useful, that well, you could get really. an early heads up, you're going to be flooded. Well, how do you know where you're living, though, that it's going to be affecting you? Or, uh, you know, how do because they it, know that because it's going to be Because it's local. It goes, from, it goes from regional masts to people no, in the I area. No, I get all that. I know what the actual, you know, niceties are of the way they think it will work. But the fact is that you might be travelling somewhere that they don't know you're travelling to for example and you might need to know that there's a flood or you might just find out a different way like you do at the moment i'll be honest i was playing devil's advocate i, I mean i think you can you can imagine i don't think we need this even for flood alerts no um a study was actually done among adolescents a small one back mm. in 2017 and it was interesting there were quite a few comments from these young people saying well we'd then check social media to see if it's real because they were quite aware that something like this could be misused for scamming or phishing yeah. or we'll wait for somebody in authority to tell us what to do right um the study concluded that emergency alerts would be an effective way to communicate with adolescents. But the conclusion was that they were likely to be compliant. Mm. So the, the measure of the test was, will people do what they're told? The reason these teenagers were likely to do what they were told is because the tests made them panicky, yeah. worried, anxious. And, you know, there's this, I just think that increasingly there's this feeling that um, it's right for government to tack, tap into a mm. pervasive culture of fear to trigger our anxiety to make us do what we're supposed to do. And there's another, there's another angle to it. It's about responsabilisation. So if the government can ping you, it's up to you to have your phone on you. It's up to you to pay attention and do what you're told. Mm. But that just deflects away from the fact that the government actually should be building better infrastructure and plans to prevent floods, to prevent well, the emergencies. A, that would be a good idea. Spend the money on the frontline services yes. or flood pretend, prevention. Or stop building houses on floodplains. How about that for an do idea? Do that. You know, there's, there's so many things that make a lot more sun, sense mm. than um, a somewhat unreliable alarm that you're supposed to pay attention to. And if you heard people in um, emergency services and, and public agencies talking about this in the lead up, you know, they, they were using the word need a lot. People need to do what they're told. Mm. It's very autocratic yes. language. It's telling you what you have to do, what your responsibility is right. in, a, in an emergency, beyond just having common sense as mm. an adult. And what it does is totally, totally deflect away from the responsibility of the government to do its job to try and prevent the emergencies happening in the first place. What I can guarantee will happen within a year or two is we'll start getting extreme weather alerts. Mm. Oh, it's a hot day. Yeah. Pack your hat. Right. It's, uh, I don't want my phone going off every five minutes because of something that they think is going to be possibly dangerous or not. No, absolutely not. My my phone is my private property. Yeah. So, I mean, I use it for some non-personal business like SatNav. Mm. Um, I use it for work emails. I use it to communicate with your lovely producers here. Yeah. I use it for things that are not at all personal. But I also use it to store my family photos yeah. on. I use it for my diary. Mm. You know, we use it to intimately message our lovers. It is a private piece of property that sits in your bag, right. your bedroom and in your pocket. And the idea it is that not for the government to, to communicate sort of, with me uh, on. To prove to you, if you like, that they know where you are as well. Mm. I'm not very keen on that either. Absolutely not. And I think it's the thin end of the wedge. Mm. My emergency alerts are off and they are staying off. I'll take a leaf out of St George's book and not the government. Well, what was interesting was that just before um, Saturday, I think it was, I got a message from a friend of mine, a friend of ours actually, to say there's another, there's a backdoor um, alarm in your phone, which mm. you also have to shut down. I don't know if you know about this, but if you've got an iPhone, it was in home as opposed to where the alerts are at the bottom of the notifications. And so yeah. I changed that as well. And I half expected when I put it all back on again on Sunday, because I did, just to see if they would then sound, and it didn't. So I missed it altogether. It didn't store it in any way. It didn't sort of come back to haunt me later. 
I think so there's a, there's I still a, haven't heard it. No, and no, nor me as well. And I think there's a very good chance if I get an unwanted siren on my phone, I'm going back to an old Nokia brick. The, the idea that well, the government can happen. make my phone squeal right. upon its command is just horrific. That's, See, look, that's my alerts my are back on. I wonder if I put them back on. I forgot to put them off again now. Anyway. Um, but I don't want to have to spend my time checking to see whether the bleeding alarm is on or off. You know, I, don't, I just don't like noises like that going off for no apparent reason. No, no. Mm. It's not a government pager. It's our phone, isn't it? It really is. Also, I don't need to be told about every single thing that's coming if, if it's not particularly bothersome. You know, like when's the next time there's going to be a wildfire affecting me? I live by the river. <laughs> you know, there isn't going to be one, to be honest, is there? Almost certainly not. And mm. that's the thing. It, what it does is create this general sense of anxiety. Oh, no, there could be a disaster. There could be a problem. It's making you primed for danger. Yeah. This is no way and to And also, live you life. said that a lot of younger people are anxious about these things. They've been sort of educated to be anxious, haven't they? Mm. Because younger people are now less resilient. We were talking about the whole bullying conversation last week with Dominic Raab and how now it's more difficult to get people to do what they're told to do. Um, you know, organisations, whether they're public sector or private sector, you know, it's a very, people were saying things on, on TV and radio like, well, it's a very different world now, you know, you can't just order people around because they won't accept it. You know, and that's all part of this anxiety driven kind of generation of people who can't really handle anything that's a bit, you know, a bit dodgy. A bit unpleasant. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And yet at the same time, young people have never been so browbeaten. There's um, a story about how uh, Keir Starmer, it was in, in the Times Day, Keir Starmer would like schools to be teaching boys mm. um, about respecting women. Now on the face of it... Is that all women or just 99% of them? Well, you see, this is the point. I mean, the idea <laughs> that schools at the moment, which teach that there are multiple and infinite genders and a boy can be a girl and a girl can be a boy, mm. are in any way a sensible place anymore yeah. to teach about sex-based violence and respect is a joke. Which is it? Are there, mm. are there different sexes or not? Right. And I feel so sorry for young men who have been told for years that masculinity is toxic, yeah. that all the problems are with them. Yeah. This doesn't mean I deny that the sex-based violence or, or a lack of respect, this, these things happen. Yes. But I don't believe that the way forward is telling boys en masse what they're doing wrong the whole time. Mm. I've got two teenage boys and I think they're going to be glad to see the back of school, to be honest, because transgender ideology is very much pushed down their yeah. throats at school. Uh -huh. And they're always being told what's wrong with their sex. Yeah. When are they ever given positive male, positive male role models or told, about, told well, what's not, great about men? They're not. No. They're only ever told what's wrong with them. Which is how we ended up having that conversation initially about Andrew Tate and yeah. the numbers of young men who have kind of gravitated towards the things that he says. Yeah. Because that's where they hear it. So he's a very cartoonish and braggadocio version mm. of a male role model. Yeah. You know, maybe he's not the ideal male role model, yeah. but what he does is say there's nothing wrong with being masculine mm. and a man. And so is it any wonder that boys and young men have flocked in their millions yeah. to follow him? Right. And I think probably that's why he was seen as such um, a danger mm. by the establishment, because he literally has hordes of young men who look up to him. Yeah. And not because he's so great, but because there's a real lack of choice and of you positive can tell, male role models. And you can tell what's wrong with the school system because their answer to that um, particular problem was to try and shut it down as opposed to talking about it, which is what they should have done. They should have yeah. said, OK, all right, let's talk about what he stands for, what he says, what he thinks, and why you think that's good. And maybe we could tell you why we think it isn't good or parts of it aren't good. Instead, no, we're just going to ban you from school if you mention his name. You know, it's kind of bonkers, isn't it? 
It is. I mean, um, one of my son's friends was taken out of his class and told, um, if you ever say again that there aren't more than two genders, there's mm. no place for you in this school. That's hate speech. That's the kind of thing yeah. that young men are told in school. Yeah. So I don't think it's any surprise they've been following Andrew Tate, shutting down the conversation, mm. telling boys their masculinity is toxic and they're not to beat women up isn't, isn't really the way forward. Instead, no. start presenting really positive examples of how great men can be. Mm. Um, show them what a good male rom- model looks like. Yeah. That would be the way forward. But of course Keir Starmer's got it wrong. He doesn't know what a woman even is. No. Well, he still thinks that some women have a penis, doesn't he? Just 0.1% or something like yeah, that, not many. though. No, not, not many. Not that many. But, you know, a significant number. Um, let's talk about COVID because... Um, Hang a... on, before you do, yeah. another, another tra- did you see that there was a, a trans woman who ran in the London Marathon? I didn't. Yeah, so there was um, a, a trans-identified male who ran in the London Marathon. It's caused a bit of outrage because apparently about 14,000 women have been placed, you know, one lower down mm. in the race because um, a male who oh, says they're a woman has... Yeah has taken that woman's place. The funny thing is about this, this trans woman, is that they were in the New York Marathon in November as a man. Wow. Uh, look okay. how easily swapped around it's it is. confusing, isn't it? Yeah, you're a man one year, a woman the next, right. and it just seems unfair. It's another example of being unfair to mm. women in sports. But, of course, if the marathon um, authorities had said, you can't do that, you can't run as a woman because you used to run as a man, there'd be all sorts of hell kicking off, wouldn't there? There'd be all sorts of boycotts going on. Yeah, probably. I mean, he said girl power uh, in an interview on TV and it's it's just a little bit embarrassing, really. Mm. There's, there's no girl power fueling him. It's a male body. Yes. Yes, indeed. Um, so, what's up? What's up? <laughs> yeah, um, what's up? Uh, there's, apparently there's a, a committee going on. Well, I think it goes on all the time, but we just don't really report on it much, the COVID inquiry. But apparently today's the day they're looking at WhatsApp texts mm. between the ministers, presumably not just Matt Hancock's, but everybody's. Well, they'll need more than one day to do it. And don't fret about reporting on the COVID inquiry all the time because it's going to be going on for about a decade. Mm. We we have this enormously long-running inquiry with um, very wide-ranging parameters, no fixed deadline for when it's supposed to end. And Baroness uh, Hallett has said that government ministers' WhatsApps now need to be included as part of the yes. inquiry. which I Except think is, for the ones that have gone missing, of course. Apart from the very key month during which the U-turn occurred right. before the lockdown, which has gone missing. But I, I think that this is probably the correct decision. Now, within government, there's very inconsistent guidance uh, among the departments about mm. how they're supposed to use WhatsApp. I mean, in theory, it's a non-corporate form of communication, which isn't really ideal for doing business. But of course, the appeal for government ministers is the same as it is for all of us. Yeah. It's convenient, it's easy, it's quick. So of course, they're all on WhatsApp groups. And in a way, it's not really any different to the idea of chatting in a corridor mm. or getting to a meeting early to persuade people of how the meeting's going to go before it starts or, right. or hosting a dinner. But it's obvious now from the lockdown files, which The Telegraph reported, um, Matt Hancock's leaked WhatsApps, that a lot of informal decision making is happening on WhatsApp. It's unaccountable. It's not part of official government channels. And because... Because it's um, a communication channel that lends itself to very small, bite-sized pieces of Mm. information, there's obviously a real risk that decisions were being made on the fly without complete information being presented in the proper setting. So I think there's a lot of worries about the way it's contributed to chaos, uh, to poor decision-making, and 
complete lack of accountability. Yeah. Freedom of information requests haven't been including WhatsApp messages, no. for instance. No, because you didn't know you needed to include them. Because, I mean, there's been an argument ever since those messages came out, um, thanks to Isabel Oakeshott, that actually, um, what on earth is, is a government minister doing communicating on what is effectively a social media tool, which, although they say it's encrypted, may not be entirely secure, may not be entirely safe from foreign interference or foreign governments or foreign spies, you know, and there's no record of it. Whereas if everything is done through proper channels in government, there is a, a genuine record kept of every communication, isn't there? Well, there isn't a genuine record kept of every communication. It's like I'm saying, people talk in the corridors and it's not minuted. People sure. have dinners and it's not minuted. Yes, but I mean, anything which is written down, let's put yes. it that way. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it, I think it makes perfect sense to everybody that WhatsApp should be considered as official government yeah. communications now. Right. And or they anybody, should say you can't use it. Uh, well, that's not realistic, though. They're not going to. They're not going to stop. We're in the modern world. Mm. Um, but it, they should know that every time they use WhatsApp, it is. It must be recorded. It's available for freedom of information requests, for internal review, for internal monitoring, and for inquiries. Yes. What else is going to come up? I mean, so far, there have been some absolute gems in the mm. WhatsApp files. Um, we saw Matt Hancock saying that he wanted to scare the pants off yeah. everybody with a new variant. That's right. We saw them giggling, mm. basically, about people being kept in quarantine hotels. Yeah. That's right. They didn't really... Um, well, they disgraced themselves, didn't they? Mm. They, they, bas they basically laughed at the public yeah. and made... Decisions are huge, such as whether kids should be wearing masks mm. in schools on the fly, yeah. on a social media on channel. On the basis that Nicola Sturgeon thought it was a good idea. Yeah. Incredible. We haven't spoken about her for a while. It's all gone a bit quiet up in Scotland. And then he's been arrested for a few days. He's equipped. Now, here's a question for you. Yes. Just to lighten the mood. I was given this earlier by Aaron. Uh, what is the best biscuit for dunking? And there's actually been a survey done. And it comes out that Jaffa cakes... Oh, no. ...are the best. Because oh, they don't no. break. Really? Yeah. Well, I think there's only one way to eat a Jaffa cake, and that's to pick off the chocolate, right. um, then to get rid of the biscuit base, and then to eat the orange. I wouldn't ever dunk a biscuit in my coffee. I don't drink tea. I drink coffee. You wouldn't, yeah, and you I like really my biscuits in, in and my coffee, coffee separate. Right. Coffee th with a slice of cake next to it, maybe, on a proper plate with a cake fork. I like yes. everything done properly. The plain digestive is the least dunkable, apparently, because it falls apart too quickly. And the Jaffa cake also, controversially, technically speaking, is not a biscuit, is it? Well, is it even a biscuit? That's I remember having point. an argument about this because it was subject to VAT or something, or wasn't subject to VAT. And I think somebody was trying to make it subject to VAT if it was a cake. And it's not. It's one of those ridiculous arguments that you have in Britain, because apparently I think it's not a cake, therefore it is a biscuit, therefore it doesn't have to be subject to VAT. Well, you know, it's okay for there to be some eternal mysteries in life. Like, is a scotch egg and meal, and is a tomato a fruit? Well, is a Jaffa back cake to the COVID inquiry. Back to the COVID inquiry. Remember that ridiculous time when you couldn't go to a pub without having to have something substantial to eat? That was the word, wasn't it? Yes, because that is. I mean, the thing. The thing is, so much was just completely made up on the spot, and now the latest is from a study in Wales. It appears that shielding mm. didn't do anything to notably decrease infection rates. In fact, if anything, infection rates were slightly higher in yeah. those who were shielding. And one scientist said there wasn't really any evidence for it. We were just making it up as we went along. Right. It's I good mean, when even, you hear that, isn't it? Even something as profound as shielding, you've got to remember, none of these things have really been done before on mass. No. So it was a but it was a word gigantic as well. experiment. It was one of those words that we didn't really know much about, but then suddenly everybody was saying it. Oh, I'm shielding. I hated that word. 
I don't know what it was about the word. I just didn't like it. I never used it. Would you have liked cocooning better? Because that's the word that David Halpin, the head of the Nudge Unit, first let slip on BBC. Really? Yeah. No. It would cocoon it the elderly. Remind me of that awful film, Cocoon. Remember that? Oh, about the the old people, the old people that dying. What? No. Did they die? Wasn't wasn't that what it was about? Well, I, I think of chrysalises and insects when I think of cocooning. Yeah. So I don't. It, it feels like wrapping people up in some sort yeah. of um, claustrophobic swaddling. It's not a word I like Free either. Essentially, thing. people should have had the choice to manage their lives yeah. in the way they wanted during a pandemic. And some people could. I mean, I came to work every day. You know, how come that was possible when lots of other people didn't? Because you were supposedly a key worker. Well, in I the was. Media. Yeah, but what I'm saying is, is that you know, my outcome wasn't different from anybody else's who didn't go to work, really. Was it? No, and I and I think that will increasingly be be shown to be the case. I think what's outrageous is that this advice, which was essentially unevidenced and quite experimental, was passed off as evidence based. Yeah. We were told to follow the science. Yeah. I think that's been a terrible hammer blow for science. Mm. You know, the latest news is that vaccination rates are down for young people, and is it any wonder because everyone was hammered to get yeah. a new vaccine? I think a lot of trust has been eroded in the government, and that's probably part why there's such a cynical reaction to... And I think the health service as well. Yeah, and, and we see it play out on the cynical reaction to the emergency yeah. alerts. I think before COVID, I would have just gone along quite blithely with the idea of mm. an emergency alert on my phone. I'd thought, gosh, well, maybe this is useful yeah. in case there's an emergency. But I think by now I've got fear fatigue... You know, I don't mm. want any more fear or anxiety pushed upon me, yes. conveyed or upon any me more to make warnings. Me Just leave us compliant. alone. No more warnings. And I don't trust the government to know what a disaster is and is not, or right. to get the warning system right. No, exactly. It's but barely... I, wouldn't, I wouldn't have said that before 2020. Mm. I wonder how many millions of us feel the same way yeah, now. Yeah, probably an awful lot. Well, a delight as ever, Laura. Thank you very much indeed. Laura Dosworth back, of course, next week, next Tuesday. Um, this is Talk TV. I'm Mike Graham. We'll take some calls coming up. On your mobile, on your wavelength, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republican Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Now, I know it's only Tuesday, uh, but we've already got um, some coronation magic for you, some coronation stuff, because Lance Forward is here, uh, former MEP, of course, also uh, the co-owner of Forman and Field. I say co-owner, perhaps you were just the owner, right? Well, uh, yeah, with my wife, of course. With your that's wife, of course. Coach. So that's a co-owner then. Uh, Forman and Field, wonderful food company. He's made something called a coronation box, which I'm, uh, I just put out as a, as a picture a minute ago, which has got all sorts of delights in it, some cheese, it looks like some... Um, crackers, some uh, coronation chicken, of course, of course. Um, some uh, rather nice-looking pâté, Foreman and Field uh, desserts as well, some um, the pork pie, perhaps, a sausage roll. Um, it all looks rather rather lovely. Thank you for bringing it in. Pleasure. Well, um, Charles did actually say that he wants people to celebrate his coronation. The king. With the king, yes. King Charles, absolutely. He said he wants us to celebrate his coronation with street parties. Yeah. And um, we thought, well, we have to rise to the occasion and uh, put together a you know fantastic collection of British food. Absolutely. Uh, so I got together with my chefs about uh, four or five weeks ago and we came up with this wonderful thing, the Coronation Box, which... Uh, which is great because yeah. one of the things that people don't particularly necessarily want to do is, is sort of cook and go to all the trouble of all that. So this is just... You just get this delivered... It arrives, you know, you if you're... Jo- it. Exactly. It's for two. The idea is for two. If you're joining a street party, you might take yours with you. Yeah. You might want to share it out. You might want to take a few of them, or even if you were just watching in front of the, you know, in front of the telly yeah. at home. Um, because you know, there's it's quite a few a, things here, aren't there? I mean, there's a sausage roll which looks rather good. I'll just hold that up so that everybody can see because you can always tell a good sausage.
sausage roll by the pastry. I was. Oh, and can you see the little crown on the top? I can see yep. the little crown. Yeah, on the top. it's all so made by our chefs, go. and we've got a fantastic go. team of chefs. What, 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 the, 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 the chef that runs our kitchen that makes all this was formerly the executive chef on the Orient Express train. Oh, really? So you know, and and my the chef that pretty much runs my business was trained at the Connaught Gavroche. Yes. You know, you're talking proper top end. This stuff. is top top end mm. uh, food. Now, if I take a little bite of the sausage roll, you may have to speak for a moment. Okay. So, so tell us what uh, tell us something about the sausage well, roll. We, we've tried to use. You know, I say British ingredients throughout. So the sausage roll is made with Welsh lamb. Mm. Um, oh, that's good. Yeah, mm, really good. Oh, oh, again, all all handmade. Uh, uh, we we start actually with the um, the tartar of what we call our royal fillet of smoked salmon. Yes, and we've infused that. So we've tried to find foods and drink that Charles really likes. Okay. We've done a bit of research. Well, smoked salmon that. is your thing, isn't it? Smoked salmon's our thing. The royal fillet is the best cut of the smoke. It's like the fillet steak of smoked salmon. Okay, but we've infused this with martini because he likes to have martini as his pre-dinner tipple. And where do I find so, that? So that is the one right in front of you to the left. Uh, just one? there to the left, to the left. That just one? no closer to you. Close to you. Oh, here. That, that is it. So, oh, this is so, salmon. Okay. Yeah, it's uh, it's a tartar of salmon right. um, infused with martini. There's a little olive and lemon at the top. I see we don't that. know whether people prefer I their, thought this was uh, some their kind of martinis with a twist or mm. with... Uh, mm. Oh, that's good. So it's well, basically a, smoked salmon just sort of wrapped around. It's basically smoked salmon chopped up into a tartar mm. uh, with with a few nice little herbs and uh, as a infused with martini. Delicious. Um, we have now Charles loves mushrooms. He yeah. loves wild mushrooms. Loves wild mushroom risotto, uh-huh. and he's also a massive egg fan. Right. So we've made a wild mushroom risotto scotch egg. Wow, and that's here. And that is there. And it's got so, a softer out, of outer casing than normally, you would say, hasn't it? Yeah, and we, we try to keep the yolks pretty softish yeah. too, actually. I've had your um, scotch eggs before, they're delicious. Yeah. Because so that's it, the great secret, isn't it, to keep the yolk, the yolk... It is, you don't want it sort of rock hard, it so it's nice and uh, gooey, and, uh, mm. and that's, uh, yeah, encased in wild mushroom mm. risotto. Mm. Oh, that's good. Vegetarian. I mean, there might be some, you know, we've tried to, you know, there's a bit of fish, meat, vegetables. Well, he's he's a bit sort of, he leans towards vegetarianism, doesn't he, a bit? He does, but he loves mutton, for yeah. example, which is why we sort of went for the lamb in the, in the, the sausage roll. Right. Now, the, the other thing, we it was a complete guess on our part, right. and, you know, maybe an educated guess, but, of course, now they've said that they want people to be eating quiches. Yes. And when we designed this, that announcement hadn't actually been made. Right. But what we've included is something we call a flamiche. Okay. And it's with spinach also. He wanted this is what spinach I've got here. with it. Yeah. So it's it's a with flamish. spinach. That sounds like something from the Sopranos. <laughs> I got a flamiche over here. Oh, yeah. Well. Uh, <laughs> Sorry. I love the Sopranos. I don't know. Exactly. I do. You got me on a whole. Yeah. No, I, love I the do. Sopranos. Mm. Yeah. Um, so it's with, it's with spinach and salmon. And okay. The difference between a flamiche and a quiche. This is like an upper crust uh, uh, quiche. So instead of, with a quiche, you make it with um, This whole is a eggs. flamiche here. There it is. You uh, see, it good. looks really good, that's doesn't good. it? It is good. So um, a, a quiche is made with whole eggs right. and milk. Mm-hmm. And with a flamiche, you make it just with the egg yolks and cream. So mm. it's even richer. Oh, that's delicious. You know, it's really, uh, uh, really And yummy. very salmon-y as well. Uh, very salmony, um, yeah, salmon and spinach. Right, very nice. Um, then, of course, we, we just thought you've got to have coronation chicken in there. Yeah. I know it's, that that was uh, devised for his mum mm. back in 1953. That's right. There was a food writer called Constant Spry who came up with the idea of this sort of curried, Constant creamy Spry, chicken. Spry, what a great name. It's a fantastic name, mm. isn't it? It was, sounds like a food, actually. It does. <laughs> Is that not the song they sing in um, Trading Places? Uh, Constant Spry, Constant uh, Spry, any time at all. It's uh, when they're, you, you know, it? uh, no, not really. 
Um, I have this ridiculous memory for things in films. Okay. Um, and there's definitely something I think the yuppies all sing um, when he gets thrown out of the uh, the gentleman's club. So coronation chicken. So yes, chicken. you get the coronation chicken. We've got some lovely Godminster crackers there, which also then go with cheese. Yes. And the cheese we've chosen. I know Charles is a big fan of cheeses, and of Godminster course, crackers. So here's the coronation chicken. I'll just here's hold that up. Well. Just being asked to hold all this stuff up. And that's made with golden raisins, a bit of curry, and uh, and it's curry delicious. powder, isn't it? Um, Essex barn reared chicken. Okay. Um, so you know, all local. This is great. Red tractor. I'm not uh, going to need any lunch now. Um, and what's what's special about the crackers? Did you say they're Godminster crackers? They're they're artisan made crackers, and mm. uh, you know mm. everything we're doing is artisan. You know, n- nothing is a is sort of mass produced food here. Right. Um, the Baron. The big thing about all the food that you guys produce, though, is it's, it is absolutely wonderful. I'm not just saying that. Well, you know, it doesn't matter whether you're you know Mr or Mrs Smith living mm. in any part of the country, or you're the chef at the most famous hotel in London we will be supplying exactly the same standards. Yes. And if you want to order one of these, you have to be quick, right? Um, Well, uh, you do have to be pretty quick. We are closing off orders um, on the 28th of April, so this Friday. Okay. uh, Because, well, Monday's a bank holiday. um, We have to make everything uh, freshly. Yes. So it's not like we're just sitting with this stuff sitting on shelves, waiting to take them off shelves and deliver them. Literally, once we know exactly how many orders we've got, the chefs will just be working, okay. you know, night and day. And to, anywhere to in the UK? Freshly. Anywhere in the UK, absolutely. Um, they're ninety pounds okay. plus nine ninety five postage and packaging, and right. it all comes beautifully packaged with it's ice packs. It's a nice pack, present so. to send somebody, isn't it? Yeah, it's you know, I mean, this is a very special moment in our history, you I know, think so. and it is worth a celebration. I think Charles is right on that front. I um, mean, people who say that, oh, I'm not that bothered about it. You kind of go, well, you kind of should be bothered about it because, I mean, I wasn't around for the last coronation. Um, I missed that by a few years, luckily. Um, And I probably won't be around for the next one, but I will be around for this one. Well, I have to say, last year I went to see the Queen lying in state Mm. and I was in two minds about it because I heard about these 14-hour queues. And I have to say, I think it was the best thing I did last year. Really? It was, you know, we travel if we're able to, to far-flung parts of the world to go and see historic monuments Mm. and so on. This was living... Living history. It was sense. living history. Yeah. And, you know, we, we you, you could be part of it, and uh, and I think this is something. You know, the coronation will be similar. It's something you're going to sort of tell your kids about, and yeah. so on. I was. I had the most. And it's just the most extraordinary thing happened to me yeah. on on the way to to visit the Queen because you know in that fourteen hour. And how queue, long were you seven in? Seven miles. Hours? I was there from the beginning, right. You know, right the way through, and about twelve hours in. I was just crossing over Lambeth Bridge, yeah. and he's, all these marshals said, oh, can everybody come to this side of the bridge, please? Right. So we all sort of headed over. He said, what's going on? Charles gets out of his car. Right. Uh, and wow. starts walking down, shaking hands, and yeah. we, had a little, we had a little chat. Nice. It was, uh, it was very nice. I was wearing my old college scarf, which was his college scarf okay. as well, so I don't know whether he recognised it. He possibly did, yeah. Maybe he did. But uh, it was just a very, you know, I went to see the Queen and ended up seeing Charles, and then... As we sort of moved back after Charles had walked on, they said, oh, no, stay here, stay here. Right. And then, of course, William comes down, too. Oh, so we had a little chat with William. Too, Very so. nice. So you yes. see, those are the kind of things that would you never do. happen. You never know you what's going to happen. If you hadn't exactly. done that. Exactly. You know, exactly. that's why it's always a good idea to be involved in it. Because if you if you miss it, you know, you're kind of missing out on something, as you say, which is really historic. What, it, what do you think it, you'll be doing on the actual day of the coronation, then? Well, this um, year? I think, you know, um, we'll be celebrating, you know, with... This sort of uh, wonderful thing. And it's a very and, uh, British day, isn't it? It it's, is. It's nice... I remember, I, mean, I went to, to the Queen's Silver Jubilee. Yeah. I must have been about 14 or 15 yeah. or something, maybe even younger. But uh, And I still remember 
uh, going to that. And you yeah. do remember these things. Oh, yeah. They sort of these well, historic like, you know, events do of, mark your... My memory of you know, that was I came home and my, my parents lived in a flat in a very nice part of Hampstead. And I came home and my father sort of thrust these two tickets at me. Or four tickets, actually. And said, have you ever heard of these people? And it was four tickets to the Queen... Um, Silver Jubilee concert at Earl's Court that right. night, and it turned out that the guy living next door was a was a sound engineer for Queen, and had just knocked <laughs> on his door and said, "I've got these tickets. You fancy them?" Fantastic. So I went with my parents. We couldn't find a fourth person, believe it or not, it, and we were about ten rows back watching um, Freddie Mercury and the guys doing this incredible concert. It was amazing, and that was my memory of the Silver. Because I don't, I think I was a bit of an anarchist when I was seventeen. So I don't uh, think I was that interested in the, uh, in the coronation. But what are you going to be doing on the... Um, are, you, well, are you reporting? I or? think I'm going to be doing a show okay. um, immediately afterwards at four okay. o'clock with Kevin right. O'Sullivan. So we'll be here. Um, so I'll probably watch it yeah. at home, I guess. But um, I think I think every, you know, I think everyone will. I mean, everyone around the world is going to be watching this, aren't yeah. they? You know, so it's, uh, you know, you've got to invest a little bit of time in... Uh, well, I, I think, think it's one of the it, things that... History, that, yeah. that, that Britain is very good at, and occasionally is, yeah. we, we have a sort of a faltering of our identity, our national identity, and it's nice to remember who we are, I yeah. think. Uh, the government have announced that the Prime Minister will host a big lunch at Downing Street on Sunday, and the guests will include community volunteers from across the country. Maybe you should send him one of your boxes. Maybe I should. That'd be quite a good ad for it, wouldn't it? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. yeah. The so, Queen of Puddings, we left that one off, the uh, the Queen of Puddings at the end. Oh, uh, right. The one with the... Uh, so that's... Uh, I've got the King of Puddings. That's the King of Puddings, exactly. The Queen of Puddings is a quite, a, you know, well-known sort of oh, dessert. But we've we've changed it to the, oh, uh, the well, King of Puddings. Oh, I this lovely-looking cheese as oh, well. Oh, the cheese is fantastic. Baron That's an Bigot, English cheese, Baron it? Bigot. Right. It's, 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 it's equivalent to a brie. It's okay. equivalent to a brie de mot, but it's, it's English... And it is just, it's one of my favourite Well, this English is going to go down Absolutely very well yummy. with the troops. I'm sure that they will be scoffing all of this um, yeah. after, you, after you leave. And this is, yeah, this is lemon custard. We've infused it with a bit of whiskey. He likes a whiskey. Yes, so, he does. Um, a bit of whiskey in there too. Right. Uh, raspberry coulis. And then there's that lovely sort of meringue uh, crown on the top. And you don't, I suppose you don't recommend um, beverages to drink with all this stuff, do you? Well, we have included a little tea caddy of palace tea, Earl Grey tea. Okay. Um, obviously, you'll need your own pot and hot water. Yes, um, but that's nice. uh, we nice thought that would be a nice little thing. A tea palace uh, tea, um, Earl Grey. But no sort of English fizz or anything like that. Um, it's, you don't really sell that, do you? We, we do sell English fizz, but we just thought you know people do like to choose. You know, we don't they know whether people want a yeah. champagne or a pims or you know mm. we just don't know what they're going to want. So. Yeah. We, we, we're we looking after the food and other people can decide on their... Yes. Uh, what, what well, well I'll tell you what, you could do a lot worse than getting this box because uh, it looks absolutely divine. And, I mean, it's not the most expensive thing, but it's not that cheap either. But it's definitely worth eating. It's quality. It's, it's, quality, quality, it's quality stuff. Quality. And, and I mean, I'm, I would highly recommend it anyway. Everything, everything I've ever had from your fine organisation has always it's been terrific. <laughs> absolutely brilliant. Um, I'm told there's a text there for you. Well, you say that, but, uh, oh, here we go. Uh, I've got a Jubilee box of biscuits in a red, white and blue wreath on the front door, but Bunting's not up yet, but I still miss Liz and I like Lance. That looks smart, says this oh, text. Very so there intelligent you are. Uh, There you are. Obviously there. very, very discerning, <laughs> very as, discerning. As, as all of them are. Um, Coronation box looks lovely. Do they do gluten-free at all, says Jeanette in Hartlepool? Um, we do do gluten-free food. We All our fish cakes are gluten-free. We were doing all the fish cakes for Wimbledon last okay. year. And about three or four days before it all kicked off, they said, by the way, can you do them gluten-free? Right. They said, oh, well, yeah, okay, okay then. If you want them gluten-free, yeah. we're doing them. So, yeah, so we do do gluten-free food. This isn't, I mean, the, the tartar doesn't have any gluten in. Um, the pudding doesn't have any gluten in. But 
there is gluten in the in the flamish and the, the sausage rolls. Yeah. yeah, the flamish. So something the coronation chicken there isn't. So, yeah. You know. Okay. So you can you can mix there's, and match. Yeah. But there's a lot. That, I mean, we say this is for two, but actually, you know, there's it, quite it, a lot of food here. Quite, yeah, it would. Yeah. yeah. I goes, mean, that'll go around more than that. two of the people behind the glass there. I'm sure. Well, Lance, delightful. Thank you for coming in with it all, and um, we should enjoy scoffing it. I should imagine. Thank you for allowing me to share. Not at all. And we'll see you back soon again on Plank of the Week. I dare say. Look forward. We've got a new studio. We're oh, here, but we're oh, back here. You don't forget to healing oh, anymore, oh, which is even uh, easier. <laughs> Thank God. Um, I'll be back there tonight to do the talk, actually. But uh, this is the Coronation Box. So Foreman Field is where Foreman you find field, it. Yeah. Uh, is that Should we direct them to the website? Uh, yeah, it's just as it sounds, Foreman and A-N-D Field. Foreman is without an E. Without an E, F-O-R-M-A-N, yes. A-N-D Field. Yeah, and, field. It's yeah, a and, great and thing. Friday is th- this Friday is the last day. So yeah, so order it before Friday because we have to get all the ingredients in. Our chefs have to prepare it mm. all and uh, terrific. So, yeah. A happy coronation, I suppose. Is that what you say to people? Uh, well, yeah, happy coronation. Happy coronation. Yeah. Get yourself a coronation box. Uh, this is Talk TV. Thank you, Lance. Thank you, Mike. The home of common sense, talk radio, and talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republican Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. What a beautiful um, visitation that was from Lance Foreman. He's left behind some very, very nice food. Uh, and uh, if you can, it would be a delight to have one for your uh, uh, coronation street party, if you're having one. We'll be talking a lot more about the coronation, of course, as we get closer and closer to it. Right now, we're going to take a little sidestep uh, before we talk to LaDonna Harvey about Joe Biden and his announcement this morning that he's going to run for president in 2024. Uh, somebody who's not going to be running uh, for leadership of the Labour Party anytime soon diane abbott let's talk now to jake wallace uh, simons who's from the jewish chronicle uh, because he's discovered uh, that diane abbott actually sent the observer letter twice she's of course said that the, her, the version that they published was a first draft and this would rather blow a bit of a hole in that story um jake a very good uh, afternoon to you thanks for joining us afternoon so i mean i, I, I was just talking to lance foreman there about my interview yesterday with john mctiernan uh, who's the former sort of Tony Blair aide, um, who couldn't bring himself to tell me whether he thought that this letter was anti-Semitic or not. And I said, you know, the problem with the Labour Party is they just can't seem to get past this problem of theirs, which keeps rearing its rather ugly head today and yesterday in the form of Diane Abbott. That's right. In fact, our cartoon at the Jewish Chronicle this week is a Labour Party wha- anti-Semitism whack-a-mole <laughs> with Keir Starmer <laughs> trying right. to bash down these heads that keep popping up and it does seem to feel like that sometimes for all Keir's best intentions mm. and best efforts to try to get rid of this problem it does seem to keep rearing its ugly head and as you mentioned this morning we revealed uh, some some background to Diane Abbott's claims about that draft mm. I and mean, it was a bizarre thing to claim anyway her, her apology was very very odd it was yeah dissociating herself from her own comments that she'd made not long before so what we're revealing is that she uh, first of all, sent the letter in from her own email address, not uh, an A didn't do it. So there right. was no confusion there a week before it was published. And she sent it in twice, not once, but twice. The first time it was bounced back because she didn't include her address. Right. And then three hours later, she resent it without changing a word. Right. And then in the ensuing week until publication, didn't contact the editor saying, please, can I change my first draft to a second draft or anything like that? So it does rather raise some serious questions about the veracity of her claims yes. about it being a first draft. Well, I mean, a lot of people were doubtful of that story anyway, because, I mean, people don't usually do a first draft of anything anymore because the way that we all operate is, generally speaking, with a keyboard and a, and a screen. And so you don't actually print something out and then change it. Normally, you would just change it as you go, wouldn't you? That's right. It did It did rather have the flavour of, I'm sorry I was caught, or I'm, <laughs> so, I'm sorry to 
evoke this backlash rather than I'm sorry, I, I did something wrong. And, you know, if you look at her her backstory, her political career really has been built on this hard left worldview mm. um, of which, you know, this sort of um, very, very uh, sort of virulent anti-Israel position does sometimes blur in general into hatred of Jews. Yeah. And in Diane Abbott's own constituency, you know, she has a big uh, ultra-Orthodox Jewish community who suffer physical attacks on average once every, or two two a week, I think it is. Um, and yet, even, even, even then, she cannot accept that they suffer racism at all because she's enthralled to this American-inspired identity politics, critical race theory idea that only black people can experience racism, which yeah. obviously is absurd. Right. Uh, but rather than look at the fact, she prefers to substitute it for ideology. Well, also, it's an absurd and strange thing, really, for an MP to do, never mind an MP with quite a large Jewish community in her own constituency. I mean, why would you write a letter to the Observer in any form like that anyway? It just I mean, it seems to me that if you wanted to answer something that they'd written about, you would talk to the editor and say, could I write a guest column or something like that? Well, I think I think it's it's quite obvious why she did it, because she was responding to this article in The Observer that pointed out that 60 percent of travellers say they've experienced racism, 55 percent of Jews, 50 percent of black Caribbeans mm. and only 30 percent of black Africans. And that obviously runs contrary to the ideology of of um, of. of, of of identity politics, which seeks to restrict the definition of racism to black people. Mm. And so that got her goat. She got cross. She wrote this email, filed it off. It came back, sent it again, forgot about it until the furore ensued. And then she uh, she did a reverse right. merit or tried to. And then the other question that's come up since the publication of it is that why did nobody on The Observer think that it might be something which would be controversial when they published it? They didn't seem to see it as a story at all, which tells you something about The Observer, doesn't it? It does tell you a lot about The Guardian and The Observer. You know, Hadley Freeman, the former Guardian journalist, recently left. She's one of my columnists as well, recently left um, and went to the Sunday Times. And she delivered a number of excoriating interviews about what it was like being at The Observer mm. as a Jewish columnist, particularly during the Corbyn years. Right. Um, uh, Johnny Friedland, again, is a Guardian columnist who writes for us. Um, and he said similar things in, in the past about feeling uncomfortable with some uh, it, by confronted it, when confronted by some factions yeah. in the Guardian. And the Observer. It's no secret there's this Corbynite, strong Corbynite feeling there. And maybe that softened their sensitivity, shall we say, to, yes. to the sentiments expressed in this letter that everyone else felt. felt yes. so, so, so they outrageous. didn't think it was a story at all. And I mean, this also crystallises in a way, as you said earlier, Keir Starmer's problem that, you know, there's still a large rump of the left which has these views. That's right. I mean, Keir Starmer really has to act forcefully because not least because his own history is that he was one of Corbyn's main supporters. Mm. He was his longest uh, yeah. shadow cabinet minister, tried to put him in number 10. So now he's got to act strongly in order to disavow his own past yeah. and to show that Labour is changed and become uh, and has become electable. Uh, and Diana, but unfortunately, is not alone in the Labour Party. She's not in the Labour Party anymore, but you know what I mean. Um, there are there are pockets of hard left ideologues still within the fringes of the party, within the grassroots in particular. And there are some people in Parliament, some MPs in Parliament with sympathies in that direction as well. Mm. And until that sort of stuff is no longer in the party, it just won't be a serious electoral force. And Keir Starmer knows that, which is why he's trying to take them on now in advance of the election next year. Yeah, absolutely right. And the question I asked John McTiernan yesterday was, you know, why has she only been suspended? Why has she not been chucked out of the party like Jeremy Corbyn was for the same, roughly the same reason, or you could say even for a, for a worse reason? Do you think that's what eventually will happen to her? She she should have been expelled. I mean, what's to investigate? Yeah, we well, saw that's what, what I said. Wrote. Yeah. We saw her... 
Yeah, we saw what she wrote. We saw her defence, which was pretty shoddy, which we just talked about. What more do you want to investigate? You know, mm. she needs to be kicked out. If Keir Summer wants his party to be taken seriously again, he's got to kick her out. Mm. I hope he does. Uh, there's a big feeling in the Jewish community that she needs to be made an example of now. Mm. Um, and uh, But time will tell whether it actually happens or not, or whether it will just be kicked mm. into the long grass and eventually you know, sort of forgotten about. Well, this is the thing. You'll find these and other problems become a lot more critical as he gets closer to what he thinks is, you know, running Britain because people won't put up with it if he carries on like this. That's right. And the thing is, it's not only about anti-Semitism. These people represent a whole worldview that's totally anathema to the vast majority of British voters, particularly mm. those in places like the Red Wall that are so key to the next election. Um, and, you know, the Jews are like the canary in the coal mine that when you have these hard left ideologues or other forms of racists, the Jews fall first. But what they represent is something that's anathema, not just to Jews, but to Britain and mm. British values. They hate Jews, but they hate Britain and they hate our country and our way of life mm. and our you know, way of looking at the world. And that's what people object to. So I think people, ordinary voters know that if this problem still exists in the Labour Party, it's indicative of further deep rooted problems and it's just not an electable force. No, absolutely right. Good to talk to you, Jake. Thanks very much indeed. Jake Wallace-Simons from the Jewish Chronicle, the editor of the Jewish Chronicle there, exactly uh, echoing what I said yesterday, that what they, there's nothing to investigate here. The Labour Party doesn't need to investigate what happened. They know exactly what happened. They know exactly why it happened. They know exactly who's responsible for what happened. And surely, to heavens, they just need to then expel Diane Abbott from the Labour Party. Makes no sense to do anything other than that. This is Talk TV. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. So if you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio, via DAB, online or via the Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.